Welcome to Time Traveling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. This week we join the Doctor and Sarah Jane as they get redirected to the planet Karn and face off, in a manner of speaking, with the brain of Morbius. We'll be discussing the Doctor, the companions and the villains and give your thoughts on the story as a whole. We would also love to hear your thoughts on this story. So in order to join in the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravelingteam at teamproductions.com. As always, I shall lead us in with a rousing rendition of the story recap. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, huzzah! (laughs) Part 1. On a craggy, windswept planet, an insectoid alien crawls back to its spacecraft, but it is attacked by a large, hook-handed man who kills it. The man, whose name is Kondo, returns to a large castle high in the craggy hills and informs his master of killing the alien. He then presents the severed head of the alien to his master, but he is berated, as the master says it will not suit their purposes. Kondo says that humanoids never come to Karn, the planet that they are on, but his master says that someday one will come and they will be able to complete his work. Meanwhile, the TARDIS lands on the planet and the Doctor storms out of it angrily, shouting into the air about being blown off course. Sergeant emerges and asks who he is talking to, and he says the Time Lords, saying that they must have interfered with the TARDIS's controls. She says that the ship could have just malfunctioned, but he insists the Time Lords are responsible, and he loudly again berates them for calling on him to do their dirty work. He sits down and starts to play with a yo-yo while Sergeant takes a look around and finds the insectoid alien ship. Suddenly, lightning flashes in the sky, showing a dozen other spaceships of various kinds, all of which are badly damaged. She informs the Doctor, but he refuses to go and investigate with her, so she leaves him behind to go look. A few moments later, he hears her startled scream, and he rushes to help her, finding her standing next to the headless corpse of the insectoid alien. He tells her that it was decapitated after the crash. He says that he recognises the area that they are in via the constellation in the sky, and reveals that they are near his home system. They then spot the castle when the lightning flashes again and they decide to make their way to it as it has started the rain. Unbeknownst to them, they are being watched by a woman in red robes. The woman makes her way back to a cave where other similarly dressed women are in attendance and she informs an elder of the arrival of the Doctor and Sarah Jane. The elder, whose name is Marin, is amazed as she says that no vessel can approach the planet undetected, but the woman, whose name is Ohika, insists that she is telling the truth. Marin then says that they must protect the elixir of life, sacred artifact of their sisterhood and says that Ohika will need to be prepared to take leadership as she is the next oldest. They go to a tabernacle on the wall and open it to reveal a small flame in a bowl. Ohika is shocked by the weakness of the flame and Marin says that it has been getting slowly weaker. She confines that the only other group to know of the existence of the flame are the High Council of the Time Lords and that she is afraid that they will come to take the elixir by force. Ohika suggests that the Doctor and Sarah Jane could have been sent to steal it and Marin tells her to summon the rest of the sisterhood. At the castle, the Master is conducting an experiment testing the reflexes on the severed insectoid head when the power goes out. He then calls out for Kondo to fetch some lamps, but goes to find him when he gets no reply. He finds Kondo rummaging through a box, but Kondo says that he was trying to find food. The Master tells him that he knows that he is lying, and he says that he was looking for his amputated arm. He tells Kondo that he will reattach it once they have finished their task, and not before. Suddenly a bell rings, and Kondo goes to answer it, letting the Doctor and Sarah Jane in. The master, delighted to see actual humans, enthusiastically welcomes them before commenting on the doctor's head. The doctor and Sarah Jane joke about his previous incarnation, and the master tells him to sit by the fire whilst Kondo gets refreshments. The doctor notices a bust nearby, and comments on the master's, whose name is Madhinderi Solan's fascination with heads. Solan hurriedly covers the bust when the doctor says that it reminds him of someone. 
The doctor tells them about the decapitated body in the graveyard of ships in the valley below, and Solon says that they crashed due to the magnetic radiation interference. Condor returns with the refreshments, but is berated by Solon for not following his training on serving wine. Solon then tells the doctor and Sarah Jane about how he pulled Condor from the wreckage of a crashed ship and had to amputate his arm to save him. Meanwhile, the sisterhood starts chanting as Marin stares into an ornate looking glass. The looking glass shows her the TARDIS and Marin orders the chanting to be increased so they can summon the TARDIS to their temple. The ship appears and Marin explains its nature to Ohika, who says that its presence confirms that the Time Lords have come to steal the elixir. Ohika says that they cannot use their powers on a Time Lord, but Marin says that there are other ways to beat him and they start to chant again. Back at the castle, the Doctor reveals that he knows that Solon is a renowned neurosurgeon from Earth's future and that he was thought to have disappeared after joining a group called the Cult of Morbius. Kondo starts to draw a blade at the mention of the cult, but Solon discreetly signals for him to stop. Suddenly the wind blows the doors open and blows out the fire before dying down and closing the door again. Solon tells a worried Sarah Jane that it was just a freak wind, but the doctor says there was actually a telekinetic message from the Sisterhood of Karen. He notices that the sheet has fallen off the bust again, and he says that it reminds him of the Time Lord Morbius. He then starts to fall unconscious while he explains who Morbius was and passes out as a result of the refreshments being drugged, with Sarah Jane following suit a few moments later. Solon then starts to examine the doctor's head, relishing the surgery to come. He tells Kondo to take Sarah Jane and kill her, but then changes his mind and has Kondo bring the doctor's body to the lab first. However, after they leave, Sarah Jane, having not taken any of the refreshments due to Solon's suspicious behaviour, stealthily follows them. In the lab, Solon discovers the doctor is a Time Lord. Kondo warns him to be careful, but Solon, an adherent to Morbius's teachings, says that the Time Lords are weak, but before he can begin to operate, he says they need to first get the repair to generators. After they go, though, the doctor's body disappears just like the TARDIS did. A few moments later, Sarah Jane enters and starts to look for the doctor. She spots a four-poster bed nearby with the curtains closed and makes her way to it. However, she recalls in horror as a headless body constructed of several different dismembered parts and wires rises up to meet her. Part 2 Sarah Jane moves away from the body, but then takes cover when she hears Solon and Kondo returning. They enter the lab to find the doctor's body gone, and Solon notices the curtains of the bed disturbed. He angrily asks Kondo if he drugged the refreshments as instructed, and Kondo confirms that he did. Solon realises that the Sisterhood must have used their powers to teleport the doctor to their sanctuary. He vows revenge against them all, and tells Kondo that they need to retrieve the doctor's body, no matter the risk. After they leave, Sarah Jane exits the lab. At the sanctuary, the doctor comes to and is interrogated by Marin and Ohika, who demand to know if he was sent by the Time Lords. A confused doctor says that he doesn't know, and is taken aback when Marin says that he would be executed for his crimes. The doctor again says that he doesn't know what they are talking about, and says that his last memory was being at Solon's castle with him and Morbius. Ohika and Marin said that Morbius was executed by the Time Lords for his crimes, and the doctor says that he felt Morbius's presence when he looked at the bust in the castle. He says that even though his body was destroyed, his will endured and that his essence is still alive. Marin says that he is dead due to the fact that she was present at his execution and tells the doctor he will soon join him. Meanwhile, Solon and Kondo arrive outside the sanctuary where Solon says they would have to wait for the right time to rescue the doctor. Kondo says that he can hear something and begins to look around. Unbeknownst to them, they are being observed by Sarah Jane who accidentally stood on a loose rock but stopped it from falling on the ledge that she is on. Kondo and Solon again take cover when they see a group of sisters bringing bundles of wood into the sanctuary. Inside, Marin offers us to give the doctor a powder to help reduce the pain of his execution in exchange for his confession of guilt, which she says will prevent the Time Lords from seeking vengeance. 
Doctor says that the Time Lords are allies to the Sisterhood, but Marin retorts that they were only allies out of mutual fear of Morbius. Ohika informs him that the Elixir of Life is dying, and that they believe the Time Lords sent him to retrieve what little remains. The Doctor is shocked to hear this, as he says the Elixir is maintained by gases from the planet's core, which should allow it to burn for millions of years. He asks if there is any recent seismic activity, but Ohika says it is time for the execution, and he is tied to a pyre. The Doctor asks to be allowed to help them, as he says, if the gases are blocked from release, then there could be a catastrophic explosion. Suddenly, Solon and Kondo burst in, after having heard the sacrificial chant from outside. Marin orders them to be executed over their interference, and blasts Kondo with an energy bolt from her ring when he tries to protect Solon. Solon begs forgiveness, and asks to be allowed to take the doctor with him, as repayment for all the medical aid that he has given the sisterhood over the years. Marin refuses, and Solon offers Kondo in his place, but when the offer is also refused, he asks that they keep the doctor's head intact so he can have it. As Marin and Solon argue, Sarah Jane, wearing a ceremonial robe, sneaks in and frees the doctor from the pyre. Solon leaves dejected with Kondo, and the execution begins as the pyre is lit. The sisters are caught up in the revelry of the ceremony, and the doctor jumps from the pyre and goes to escape with Sarah Jane. Marin fires an energy bolt at them, but misses. However, the flash from the bolt's impact stuns Sarah Jane, and the doctor leads her away as she has been temporarily blinded. Once they reach the safety of the wastes, the doctor examines Sarah Jane's eyes and says that her optic nerves have most likely been numbed by the energy bolt and her vision should return in a few hours. Sarah Jane becomes slightly manic over the potential permanent damage, but the doctor says that they need to go back to Solon's. She tells him about the body she found, but he says that Solon is keeping something much worse there. Back at the castle, Kondo confronts Solon over his attempt to sacrifice him and prepares to kill him. Solon begs for mercy and offers to reattach Kondo's missing arm. Kondo agrees and Solon tells him to go to the lab to prepare whilst he fetches the arm. Solon then goes to a private room in the lower section of the castle and communes with Morbius and tells the renegade Time Lord that he needs more time to fulfil their plan. Morbius impatiently tells him that he always asks for more time, but Solon says it is all been for the good as he tells him about all the amazing scientific discoveries he has made. Morbius ignores him and says that he might as well be dead rather than spend any more time in his current state. Their argument is interrupted by Kondo, who calls to inform Solon of the arrival of the Doctor and Sarah Jane. The Doctor asks Solon to examine Sarah Jane's eyes, and Solon says that they will need to go to the lab. As Solon carries out the examination, the Doctor looks around the lab and spots the headless body. After a lengthy examination, Solon quietly indicates to the Doctor that the damage is irreparable, but tells Sarah Jane that she will get a full recovery. Solon tells Kondo to take her back to the parlour, but she's reluctant to leave the Doctor alone. He tells her that he will be alright, and once she is gone, he discusses her situation with Solon. He tells the Doctor that the only thing that can help her is the regenerative properties of the Elixir of Life, and the Doctor says that he will go to the Sanctuary to retrieve it. Solon wishes him luck, but once he is gone, he calls Kondo and gives him a message to take to Marin ahead of the Doctor's arrival. On her own, Sarah Jane hears Morbius's calls for Solon, and follows the sound of his voice to the private room. When she gets there, Morbius assumes that she has been sent by the Sisterhood to kill him. Due to her blindness, Sarah Jane is unable to see that Morbius' dissembled voice is coming from a brain in a jar. Part 3 Solon appears and angrily removes Sarah Jane from the room, saying that no one is allowed to be in there. She then overhears Solon informing Morbius about his plan to take the doctor's head to house his brain. Morbius angrily tells him to stop delaying, but Solon says that they can't risk damaging the head. Morbius says that he doesn't care about how he will appear and only wants to be able to move again and reclaim the power that he once had. Solon tells him about the trap that he has sent the doctor into, but they, as they are talking, Sarah Jane closes the door and locks it from the outside before making her way back upstairs and out of the castle. At the sanctuary, Ohika and a group of neophyte sisters 
drink the elixir of life as part of a ceremony. Once the sisters leave, Marin tells Ohika that the last of the elixir is gone and that they will be the only members of the sisterhood to remain immortal. Ohiga says that Marin should have taken it as well, but she ignores her. They are then interrupted when Solon's message is delivered and Marin is intrigued by the doctor's actions, so she orders Ohika to prepare the guards. A short while later, the doctor arrives at the sanctuary and is captured. He is brought to Marin and says that he came for the elixir in order to help Sarah Jane. Marin then reveals that Solon lied about the permanent damage and says that Sarah Jane's sight will soon return. The doctor then tries to leave, but Marin says that he is still to be executed. The doctor says that he didn't come at the behest of the Time Lords and instead has arrived by accident, but he says that he can't leave until he finds out what Solon is doing. Ohika says that they are aware of everything that happens on the planet, but the doctor suggested Morbius is using his own mental abilities to block their powers. Marin again insists that Morbius was executed and his body was completely atomized. She recounts Morbius' original quest for power when he gathered an army and brought them to Karn to gain the elixir of life, only to be beaten by a combined power of the Sisterhood and the Time Lords. Meanwhile, out in the wastes, Sarah Jane attempts to find her way through the rocky terrain, but she is eventually captured by Kondo, who released Solon when he got back to the castle and was then sent to find her and kill her. However, he doesn't kill her due to finding her pretty, and instead brings her back to the castle, despite her protest to let her go so she can rescue the doctor. Back at the sanctuary, the doctor offers to try and find a way to restore the fame of the elixir of life, but Marin is reluctant as no one bar the sisterhood can look at it. Ohika says that there is no harm in letting him try to restore it, and he is brought to the tabernacle. They see the flame is even lower than before, but the doctor is more fascinated by the natural way in how the gases interact with the flame to produce the elixir. He says that it would be easy to mass-produce it, but it would be a terrible situation due to the near-limitless immortality it would provide to the universe. Marin mocks him, saying that the Time Lords had no objection to take it, but he retorts that they only use it to help jumpstart regenerations and not use it as frequently as the sisters do. The Doctor takes something from behind his ear and throws it into the tabernacle, which causes the flame to vanish. Thinking he has betrayed them, Marin orders him to be executed, but a few moments later, the flame roars back into life. The Doctor reveals that the soot from the rock around the tabernacle had choked the flame. However, Marin refuses to release him, but instead knocks him out and sends him back to Solon on a stretcher. Back at the castle, Solon straps Sarah Jane down onto the table in the laboratory, but Kondo tells him not to hurt her. Solon is amused by Kondo's affections for her, and then tells him to leave. Sarah Jane then says that he is insane, but Solon angrily states that no one appreciates the breakthroughs that he has made, and then proudly shows off the body he assembled for Morbius. He then notices how late it is, and that there has been no word from Marin. He then makes his way to his private chamber and informs Morbius about the delay in receiving the Doctor's head, revealing that he is also a Time Lord. Morbius rebukes him by saying that he must have been sent by the Time Lords to find him so they can come and destroy him. He says they need to leave as soon as possible, but Solon says his containment unit can't be moved. Morbius says that he can just use Sarah Jane's head, but again Morbius says that her skull is too small for his brain. Morbius then recalls that Solon once suggested using an artificial case to house his brain and says that they can use that. Solon says that it is not viable for a long-term solution as it would not be able to handle the build-up of static electricity created by his brain. Morbius says that they have no other choice and Solon reluctantly agrees. He calls Kondo to help him move Morbius's brain to the lab and once there, Solon tells Kondo to fetch the body. However, Kondor notices that the left arm of the body is his own missing one, and he angrily confronts Solon about it. He throws Solon to the ground, and Solon takes out a gun and shoots him. Kondor continues to attack him, and in their struggle, they knock Morbius's brain to the floor. 
Solon angrily shoots Kondo several more times before he runs off. In a frantic state, Solon places the brain into the artificial case and then unties Sarah Jane so that she can help him with the operation. She tries to resist, but he says that he will kill her unless she follows his instructions. He tells her to pump an electric current through his body whilst he attaches the brain case to the body. He tests the reflexes on the body and sees that there is a positive reaction and he ecstatically declares that the operation is a success. He then hears the doorbell and goes to answer it. He arrives to find the doctor's body on the stretcher. Back in the lab, Sarah Jane tries to find her way out of the lab, but Dodd doesn't notice Morbius rise out of his bed and approach her. Part 4 Sarah Jane's vision c- comes back and she screams as she sees Morbius about to attack her. She manages to avoid him and flees from the lab as he pursues her. Morbius staggers into a table and accidentally catches fire when he knocks over a Bunsen burner. Sarah Jane runs upstairs and spots Solon and tells him about Morbius. Solon then rushes to check on him and Sarah Jane goes to leave but then spots the doctor's body on the stretcher. However, her concern for him is short-lived when he wakes up and says they need to find Morbius's brain but she tells him that it is too late. Meanwhile, Morbius manages to put out the flames on his body but then catches sight of himself in a mirror and angrily breaks it. Solon arrives and tells him to keep calm, saying that his speech centre is not working. He tries to get Morbius to recognise him, but the disorientated Time Lord squeezes him into unconsciousness before staggering out of the lab. He encounters the Doctor and Sarah Jane as they are making their way to the lab. The Doctor tries to talk to him, but Morbius clubs him to the ground with his right arm, which is a large pincer claw. He then goes to attack Sarah Jane, but Kondo appears and attempts to defend her. Unfortunately, he accidentally knocks her through a doorway, causing her to tumble down a flight of stairs. Kondo does his best to overcome Morbius, but he is too weak from his wounds, and Morbius snaps his neck. Morbius then leaves the castle, and the doctor gets up and goes to help Sarah Jane. He brings her into the room and lets her rest on a table whilst he goes back to the main hall. Solon appears carrying a tranquilizer gun and says he needs to stop Morbius, telling the doctor that he is most likely on his way to the sanctuary, as his hatred for the sisters is probably what is directing him. Out in the waste, Morbius encounters one of the sisters and kills her. A short while later, the Doctor and Solon find her body and search the area for any sign of Morbius. They split up and the Doctor is ambushed by the deranged Time Lord, but he is rescued by Solon, who knocks it out with a tranquilizer gun. Solon says that he can make Morbius better, but the Doctor tells Solon that they will remove the brain so that it can be sent to the Time Lords. Meanwhile, the body of the sister is brought back to the sanctuary, and Ohika tells a horrified Marin that the Doctor was telling the truth. Marin is still reluctant to believe that Morbius is still alive, but Ohika says that they must face the truth and help the Doctor stop him. Marin says that she is too weak to lead them into battle, but Ohika says that she will do it. Marin warns her that away from the sanctuary their powers will be diminished, but Ohika says that they can still try to help. Back at the castle, the Doctor instructs Sola to detach the brain whilst he goes to check on Sarah Jane. She wakes up to f- from her rest and initially thinks everything that occurred has been a dream, but the Doctor says that it really did happen. He tells her how dangerous Morbius is as they head back to the lab, but they discover that Solon has locked them in. Sarah Jane says to use the sonic screwdriver, but he says that he left it in the TARDIS. He then recognises the structure of the room as being reminiscent of a hydrogen plant and says that it should be built to the same specifications as other ones. He tells Sarah Jane to look around for hydrogen cyanide whilst he locates an air duct in the wall. He says the duct should lead into Solon's lab and they will make cyanogen gas to send through the duct. The gas starts to pour into Solon's lab just as he finishes operating on Morbius. He dies from the lethal gas, but Morbius is unaffected and gets off the operating table and leaves the lab. He makes his way to the room where the doctor and Sarah Jane are and reveals that he survived due to the lungs of his body being of an alien origin. 
Morbius says that once his resurrection is known, his followers will return, and not even the combined might of the Time Lords and the Sisterhood will be able to stop him. The Doctor then challenges him to a mind-bending contest, informing Sarah Jane that it is the sort of mental battle Time Lords do for sport, but it can be lethal. Morbius agrees, and the Doctor uses equipment from the room to make an ad hoc frame containing two headsets. The two Time Lords put on their headsets and begin their battle, causing a series of images to appear on a screen in the frame. The images show Morbius as he was before his execution, as well as a nearly a dozen of the Doctor's previous incarnations. The machine suddenly overloads and Morbius staggers from the room whilst the Doctor collapses to the ground and Sarah Jane throws the rose and smelling salts. As Morbius enters the main hall, he is suddenly attacked by a group of the sisters who chase him from the castle into the wastes. They corner him on a cliff top and force him over the edge, watching as he plummets to his death. Meanwhile, Ohika finds Sarah Jane, who says that she thinks the Doctor is dead. They bring him back to the sanctuary, where Maren says that enough elixir has been created by the reignited flame to help save him. Ohika says that Maren needs it as well, but Maren says the Doctor's need is greater. The Doctor is instantly revived by the elixir, and he watches with Sarah Jane and the sisters as Maren walks into the flame. They see her change into a young woman before disappearing completely. Ohika thanks the Doctor for his assistance, and he says that he and Sarah Jane need to leave. He gives Ohika some miniature flashbangs to use in the event that the soot clogs the flame again. He then uses one as the TARDIS leaves, making it look like it has exploded. End of the story. So, now that that is the story recapped, we're going to go, as always, to the trivia spot. So, what have you got for us this week? So, this week, the Brain of Morbius air date was the 3rd of January to the 24th of January, 1976. The writer of the story is a man by the name of Robert Bland. Robert Bland isn't a real person. Uh, Robert Bland is I would, I would hope not, because that's a horrible <laughs> last name to have. I'm sure there's someone out there whose last name actually is Bland and they're highly offended. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, but I like, just case was like, are you Bland? I can't tell, but... <laughs> so this is actually a pseudonym, Terence Dix and Robert Holmes. Terence was one who originally wrote the story that was handed over to Bob Holmes, and Bob did a number of modifications on it, which Terence wasn't happy with. In Terence's version, Morbius's assistant was a robot, and he felt that the change in species kind of removed the nuance of being unable to perceive beauty and so just constructing a body from whatever worked best which i can kind of get where he's coming from like why does solon pick random body parts if you're someone who doesn't perceive beauty in the same way that humans do it makes more sense you go with what is the strongest features that you can give the new body Hmm. um apparently the rewrites themselves came from a budgetary need do you like they had to rewrite it because of the budget. But Terence didn't like the way it ended up, and so he asked for his name not to be on it, and he asked to be credited under some bland pseudonym. <laughs> for fuck's sake. So Bob Holmes apparently somewhat passive-aggressively went with Robin Bland, which Terence found quite amusing. He did later say that he detested the changes that Bob made to the script. Um... Although he understood that that was the only way to get the show made, he wasn't a big fan of it. 
The director of the story is Christopher Barry. This is story number 9 of 10 for Christopher. So we previously saw his work in The Daleks, The Rescue, The Romans, The Savages, The Power of the Daleks, The Demons, The Mutants, and Robot. And we'll see his work one more time in The Creature from the Pit. Now, we mentioned budgetary reasons requiring rewrites. It also had a bit of an impact on the sisterhood. So they only hired one professional dancer to be part of the sisterhood. And then all of the other actresses or people who had dance experience. I don't know if they used that professional dancer all that much because all the dancing I saw was spinning around in a circle. Yeah, and it's like everyone seems to be like on par in skill level yeah. for that. Um, so I don't know if maybe they had intended to have the dances be more elaborate and then they ended up just continually paring it down. According to Cynthia Granville, who played Marin, uh, Tom Baker nearly got set on fire. So if you imagine you've got the doctor tied to the stake, basically, and they actually set fire to the wood. Um, you know, it was meant to be heavily fireproofed, like everything was checked out and whatever. Um, but apparently the flames shot up in massive columns instead of creeping up around him the way it was meant to. And according to her, if she hadn't broken character and yelled at Tom to get the fuck off the pyre, he could have caught fire and been seriously injured. And they had to get the fire brigade in between takes in order to get the whole situation under control. That's, fire that's indoors. Kind of <laughs> Always dangerous. That's pretty fucking scary. Like, Yeah, like if you think about these days, you do fire with special effects or whatever. Um, but like they literally had a fire being built and it nearly it nearly to kill the doctor. Hmm. Um and you know the that universe remi- and I'm sure Tom thanks Cynthia for breaking character. <laughs> that, that reminds you of a story, um the actor Oliver Reed did a movie, uh The Devils it's called, and in it he gets hmm. like burnt at stake. But I think for his thing was they actually had to install a trap door because they wanted to make it look as realistic as possible. So rather than have him like jump off or whatever, like they just had a trap door that when the camera cut, he just fucking went underneath the the pyre. But I think he did get singed. Hmm. Like it, managing flames in a studio is always incredibly difficult. Hmm. You know, um, no matter what you're trying to do, um, it's always very challenging for this very reason. You actually you can do all the preparation in the world, and it can still get out of hand. Um, so what did you think of the one of the few times not the only time i think we've seen it once or twice before but the use of blood when kondo gets shot it is thematically thematically Mm. it is very apt Mm. that being said it's it's kind of jarring yeah christopher barry said that he regretted it um, he thought that it was a bit much you know yes Condo shot a point blank range but on Doctor Who they often wouldn't show blood hmm. you would have had him like grab his stomach or whatever hmm. he maybe would have shown a little bit of blood on his hands but like the fact that they actually had like the squib with the blood on his shirt and everything else yeah, um, like I can- he, thought it, he thought it went a little bit too far and he kind of regretted it I can imagine that this had Mrs. Mary Whitehouse really, really up in arms. 
I imagine so. I imagine there's probably a lot of this. I imagine she probably had issues with the sisterhood as well. <laughs> um, you mentioned that the TARDIS dematerializes um, after the Doctor releases a another like flashbang Flat, thing. Yeah, we don't actually see him do that. He just disappears, and then the TARDIS disappears with a flash instead of with its normal gradual dematerialization. Yeah. Um, they played the dematerialization sound really, really fast <laughs> to, to, to sort of get it to to line up. Uh, I always thought it was an interesting thing because we don't see him dropping the flashbang before he goes inside. And obviously there wouldn't have been enough time mm. for it to be dropped before he went inside, so I don't fully get it, but whatever. Um, interesting choice. So this story... Depending on how you feel about Chris Chibnall, this yeah. story is either the best thing ever or the worst thing ever in terms of it opens up a plot hole, idea, topic mm. around there being incarnations of the Doctor before William Hartnell. Yeah. So during the mental battle between the Doctor and Morbius, we see on screen that Morbius's face, I think they show like two of his faces. No, well, they, they, show, sh- they show the... They show, the... They show what the, the bust would have looked like as yeah. an actual person. Yeah, so they show the head in the jar and then they show yeah. the bust. So yeah. two heads, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas for the Doctor, it goes Tom to John and then he clearly has the upper hand so Morbius's face comes on screen. And then it goes back Tom, John, Patrick, Bill, other people. Yeah. The other people are George Galecchio, who was a production unit manager, Bob Holmes, Graham Harper, who was a production assistant, Dougie Camfield, Philip Hinchcliffe, Christopher Barry, and Robert Stewart Banks. Oh, also a guy named Christopher Baker. Hmm. So they were all members of the production staff. Um, their pictures were used for that. Some of them were dressed up in sort of in funny hats, slightly and... silly costumes. Yeah. Um, but the whole idea, according to Philip, is that his original intention was that it was meant to be previous incarnations of the Doctor. That mm. was Philip's intention for that scene. Um, I know, like before Chris Chibnall came along, like you and I talked about this before. There was a lot of online discussion of. No, those were actually the previous faces of Mor- of Morbius. Mm. But if they had been the previous faces of Morbius, it would have started with the jar, the bust, and then mm. the others. Um, but you know, according to Philip, like fans at the time chose to ignore what he was setting up. Um, they and they still sort of, you know, connected with the thirteen incarnations bit that later came up in the series, and. As far as he's concerned, he doesn't care what fans say. The whatever they think it is to him, those are past incarnations, and therefore he played the Doctor. <laughs> that's <Yeah>. Philip's, that's <laughs> Philip's thing. A couple of people before we go into our cast, a couple of alternative casting options that were being spit around for so long. Christopher Barry was trying to get some like horror film icons 
apparently he was considering trying to get Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, Vincent Price, as well as John Bennett and Freddie Jones. I think Solon as like Christopher Lee would be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Peter Cushing, I think, would be hard to see because he'd obviously done the Doctor Who movies. So I think mm-hmm. that would be a little bit weird. Mm-hmm. But like Christopher Lee in that role, I think, would have been really, really interesting. Uh, Vincent Price, I haven't seen too much of, so I can't really comment. Vincent Price would have been like I love Vincent Price, but I think that would have been a bit too hammy. I think mm. per- personally, because I've seen Vincent Price do like, and I love his work with Roger Corman for the Edgar Allan Poe adaptations. Like mm. I, I, they're fantastic. Um, but I think. There, there, there is like the, like a stereotype to Vincent Tice, uh, Vincent Price's performance. Uh, Freddie Jones, I would have been very interested to see what it would be like with Freddie Jones. Yeah, some other alternative casting options or considerations for Condo. There was Stephen Thorne, Michael Kilgariff, who did the robot in Robot, mm. and Bernard Breslau, and then. Do you have a comment on those? Been yeah, like, no, no, because like I, again, I really like Bernard Breslau, so I think it would have been very interesting to see him in that role. Mm. And then for Marin, we have alternative considerations for Mary Mars, Sheila Burrell, and Eileen Way. I don't think I've seen any of their work. I don't think I've seen them either. Now, their names don't ring like a bit a bell. Mm. Yeah. So onto our cast proper, though. So the cast that was actually hired. <laughs> So as the vor- as the voice as the voice of Morbius, we have Michael Spice. So this is role one of two for Michael in Doctor Who. We'll see him again as Magnus Greel in the Talons of Right Trian. His non-Who credits include Hamlet, The Marriage Lines, Edward II, The Tragedy of Richard II, very Shakespearean, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, The Palacers, Zed Cars, Blake Seven, and Number Ten. Mm-hmm. Michael passed away in nineteen eighty three. As Solon, we ended up having Philip Maddock. This is appearance three of four for Philip. We previously saw him in the Crotons and also in the War Games, where he played the Warlord, mm-hmm. which didn't register in my brain until I read it. I was like, holy shit, it is him. Uh, we'll see him again in The Power of Crawl. I'm wondering, isn't it technically appearance four out of five? Because he was in the second Doctor Who movie. Yeah, I wasn't including that. It was on like, <laughs> <Yeah>. TV appearance. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, Marin, as I mentioned previously, is Cynthia Grenville. According to Cynthia, it was actually Elizabeth Sladen who recommended her for the role of Marin because she actually was able to play older than she actually was. <laughs> mm. So there wasn't that much of a difference between Cynthia and the actress who played Ohika. Mm. Um, but Cynthia looked older than she was, so... Elizabeth Slade recommended her. This is Cynthia's only Doctor Who credit. Her non-Who credits include Ivanhoe, Within These Walls, Secrets, The Gift, Poldark, and The Citadel. Cynthia passed away last year in November of 2021. Kondo ends up being played by Colin Fay, who is an opera singer. Mm. Which you wouldn't imagine when you look at Kondo, but hey. No. Acting. <laughs> um, this is his only Doctor Who acting credit. His non-Who credits include All Creatures Great and Small, The Enigma Files, Don't Wait Up, and The Bill. Lastly, as a Hohika, we have Gilly Brown. This is her only Doctor Who acting credit. Her non-Who credits include The Newcomers, Anna Five Towns, Colditz, Zedkars, The Mayor of Casterbridge, Jack and Ori, Playhouse, and Grange Hill. 
I would say for anyone who watched a much future story that mentions the sisterhood of parent, Ohika does not come back. So the character we see in the Stephen Moffat story that has a sisterhood is a character called Ohila, not Ohika. I'm sure when we eventually get to talking about that story, we may find out more about why Moffat made that choice. But there we go. Uh, and before we move on, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was at back at my parents' place. And I was watching an episode of Dead's Army and Philip Maddock was in it. So I <laughs> took a picture of him and sent it on to Trish going, I knew I recognised those teeth. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So we come to the character discussion component of the podcast. Thank you very much for the trivia. You're very welcome. So as always, we will be discussing the Doctor, uh, the companion of Sarah Jane. Prominent characters of Marin Ohika, and I've put down Kondo. Uh, mm. You can feel free to disagree with me. <laughs> and then we have the villains of Solon and Morbius. Indeed. So... Uh, it's been a while. I can't remember which of us went first. Nope. <laughs> so how My about... apologies to our listeners who listen every week that we disappeared off the map for three weeks. <laughs> I was very busy. Yes. But they, uh, I've seen some very reassuring notices, so we're all okay. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Uh, so you want, I'll give you a bit of a break. I'll go first. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go. Cool. Um, I like the doctor here. I, I really do. Um, mm. It like it starts out funny, uh, which is odd given like the overall tone of this story. You know, he comes out and he's just like giving out shit about the Time Lords, and he just sits down. And he starts playing with his yo-yo. Um, but I, what, actually, what I like about that is, as the story kicks in, mm. he doesn't let his own feelings towards the Time Lord High Council like cloud his judgment. Hmm. You know, to like you know, you know, you've been sent here by the Time Lords to steal the the elixir, and oh, the Time Lords only want the elixir, and they never say no to using. He's like, well, no, that's not true. As Time Lords, hmm. we only use it in these instances. So, I like how he. It's not quite towing the party line, hmm. but it's like, if I had, if, you get the impression that if he had any bit of belief in that statement, he would acknowledge it mm. so I, I like that i thought it was a kind of very interesting dynamic to have um i love his relationship with sarah jane here it's great uh the banter between the two of them was great as always i love the emotional oh sorry the emotions we see in his face when like solon gives like the silent there's no hope thing you mm. know like it's like the whole thing of he feels responsible for yeah. what happened to her and you know he's willing to risk his life to go get them the elixir from her or for for from Marin and the sisterhood. Um, one interesting thing though, okay, did the doctor pretty much murder Solon in this, or do you think it was accidental? I think it was accidental because if you think about it, when he releases the cyanide or the cyanogen, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. um, Sarah asks like, "So how long is this going to take?" Or like, how, when will we know if it works? And he says, if we're still locked in a month from now, 
it didn't work. Mm-hmm. I loved the little back and forth they have around that scene. I thought it was great. Yeah. So I think his thing was he would release the cyanogen and Solon would come down and unlock the door yeah. <laughs> to get it to stop. I don't think he anticipated Solon working through it mm. and dying. You know, I don't think that was. I think because his thing was that this was to get them out of the room. Yeah, there's no point in killing the two people in the building. Careful and if you're still locked in a room. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know? So I think it was accidental, personally. Yeah, because like the, the, this is one part of my head was like there is an element of like putting a mad dog down with mm. Solon, but I don't think that was the driving force here, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, no, I, I think with the way they phrased it, I don't think that's what it was intended to be. Hmm. Yeah, but like, uh, no, sorry, I just uh, think about like any other thoughts that I had. Um, no, overall, like, I enjoyed this particular story. I thought I, mm-hmm. I or like, or the Doctor in this particular story. I don't see any real major faults with him. Like, me neither. Um, yeah. I I really liked him in this one too. Um, I do like the fact that we get to see his frustration with the Time Lords. Hmm. You know, like it's. A very real and very honest frustration, you know. While, like you said, at the same time, he won't throw them under a bus. You mm-hmm. know, he won't admit that they're doing shit that they're not. Um, and he does stand up for Time Lord civilization in that respect. Also, it doesn't prevent him from seeing a Time Lord criminal stopped. Do you mm. know? Morbius was a bad Time Lord. He was sentenced by the Time Lords, and the Doctor is perfectly willing to uphold that sentence. You know, just because the Time Lords bother him doesn't mean that he would unleash a mad Time Lord, or doesn't mean that he wouldn't uphold their sentence of him. Mm. Um, which I like. Do you know, there was none of this sort of like. Well, you know, he's the Time Lord's problem. What do I care? There was none of that. There was no shirking of responsibility purely because he was pissed off at the Time Lords, um, which I like. Um, the thing that I love about you mentioned it there that like you know the way Tom acts with the whole Sarah being blind thing, mm. I think is brilliant. Um, it's. Like really, a really, it's a really great way to see how he cares about her. It's a nice sort of continuation from last week. You know, with the facial, ex- I say last week, last three weeks ago, um, when he realized that it wasn't Sarah Jane, it was a robot. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a nice continuation of that. And what I really love is the fact that, like, he doesn't trust Solon. He is fully convinced he knows what Solon is doing. But he still knows that Solon is Sarah's best chance. And he needs to go to Solon to get his opinion. Mm-hmm. Even though he doesn't trust Solon, he still goes to the sisterhood who wanted to kill him in the somewhat vain hope that Solon isn't lying. Like, Solon wants his head. He knows that. The sisterhood wants him dead. He knows that as well. But he's still not willing to gamble not going. If there's a chance, it could bring Sarah's eyesight back. 
which I love, is his commitment to her, even though he knows he's likely walking into a trap, even though he knows Solon could be lying. There is the smallest fractional chance that he's not. And so the Doctor has to take it. The only part of this story that I'm not the biggest fan of when it comes to the Doctor is mm. sort of how he belittles the sisterhood. Mm. He's not very respectful of how they perceive the flame, their connection to it, their dependence on it. I get the fact that like he was sort of saying, look, you know, you've become so dependent on it, you've become stagnant. But at the same time, I don't know, he just sort of he's not as respectful of their beliefs as I thought he would be. I don't know if you picked up on it the same way that I did, right? But mm. watching it this time around, there's a there's a huge reminiscence of the last alliance of men and elves against Sauron. Yeah, like, isn't there? Like, you, you get this yeah. feeling. Uh, yeah. So, like, like, I would say in this instance, the Doctor would represent the elves. Yeah. Because, yeah. And, like, you know, their, their viewpoints of um, men. Yeah. I, I don't know. I just think that, like, it's not overly cruel. So, I, I don't mind it too much. But the one blippy negative yeah, in like, the whole thing. It, it is a bit... Like well, you could like you know you could make the argument that it's just oh bravado. At the mm. same time, it's like there is a smell. Of, oh, how quaint! You know. Like, yeah, you're like, yeah. A little bit of respect, like, you know. If nothing <laughs> else, Karn, the sisterhoods of Karn, the Time Lords have always had or have had for many centuries this friendly relationship. Mm. Don't be a dick, like. <laughs> yeah sorry we'll take that argument from someone that can actually pilot their TARDIS thank you very much yeah like I'm sure a Time Lord has explained to them before how the elixir is formed mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how it's formed it matters what it means to them and I think he could have done it being a bit more respectful mm. I need to talk a little bit about the sort of pre-Hartnell doctors <coughs> or the alternative doctors of Philip Hinchcliffe and the boys <laughs> yeah when I first watched it, I did initially think it was Solon's, or it was Morbius's Morbius. previous forms. Same here. The fir- the very first time I watched it, 12 years ago. Mm. I know in subsequent rewatches, I know you and I discussed it way before Chibnall came along, mm-hmm. of are they previous incarnations of the Doctor? And it never massively bothered me if that's what they were meant to be. Mm. Do you know? Um... My only issue with it tying into the timeless child, if we're to jump ahead for a second, is the fact that I would have thought that the timeless child was, or like that, say, Roots Doctor or whatever, would have been 2.5. Yeah. That's... Because there's a TARDIS that looks like a police box. That's my like... only that's my only criticism mm. of that. Okay. Because of this story, I fully accept the timeless child storyline because the story set the precedent. Mm-hmm. back in the 70s and that was that was maybe not the timeless child but that was its intention was to be hey maybe there was lives before her mm. um so i just wanted to call it out because i know a lot of people sort of they either accept or ignore the brain of morbius in the timeless child conversation i accept it it's uh, it's an episode. It's an episode that raises raises much discussion. 
Yes. We'll, and we'll, that's the way we will coin it until we actually discuss it ourselves. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, yeah. But like I said, a lot of people sort of, they either accept or ignore the brain of Morbius in connection with that. Mm-hmm. Having watched it again with the future story in mind, I don't mind it. I, it, you know, when the time was child announced, I didn't mind it because the brain of Morbius set it up. So I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah. And even on its own, it just raises interesting questions. Yeah. So. What were the personalities of these other eight geezers like? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Christ. Um, shall we move on? We shall indeed to our companion of Sarah Jane. Yes, or also known as Eliza Doolittle. <laughs> 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 you had messaged me that you'd kind of forgotten that part <laughs> yeah yeah I, so when sarah jane is toying with the potential of her future being uh of being blind she kind of goes all victorian street urchin going i presume i could be you sending some flowers governor and all this <laughs> and he pulls like a shawl over her head and it's just like okay <laughs> now I think I don't find while that reaction is very funny, I still don't find it kind of out of place. Like I, I think no. it's I think it's kind of suitable. Yeah, I mean, for me, this story is an interesting one for Sarah Jane as a character hmm. because, on the one hand, we have some really quick thinking, hmm. like when she notices the doctor passing out, it's like fuck it, I'll just pretend to pass out for <laughs> Yeah, or but even before even going. even before that, she like tips the wine into yeah. the and it's like, it, so there's some really quick thinking on her part, you mm. know, really observant and stuff, some great bravery, and like she rescues him from the, like she dances and bows in front of Marin like mm. everyone else, even though she's not dressed like them at all. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, that takes fucking guts. Um, the easiest where's Wally in the world. Yeah, and then we also have her playfulness, which I've always wondered how much of that was Liz and how much of that was in the script. Because, you know, she sort of like blows a raspberry at him and kicks her leg up and then swans off to look at, you know, yeah. explore the planet when he's being petulant or whatever. Yeah. Um. So for me, the whole like, you know, selling some flowers and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> it sort of just ties in with Sarah becoming, and this is something that we'll talk about. I'm sure when we get to the end of Sarah Jane's run on mm-hmm. the classic show is how Sarah Jane changes the character from the Time Warrior to now. Yeah. Oh, she's they're... always been funny and witty, but it's coming out in a different playfulness now. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, like I would say it's not completely out of character no. for her to suddenly start channeling Eliza Doolittle um, when she thinks she's blind. The flip side of it, though, and like I gotta say as well, she has some amazing fucking guts to go wandering around in the mountains while blind. That's insane. She could very easily just fall to her death. Mm. <laughs> and I would also encourage her to cling to the rock. Don't just wander off in the middle. <laughs> um, but where I think I'm a little bit conflicted with her character in this is that all of that's true. But once she rescues the doctor from the sisterhood, 
she doesn't really contribute a whole lot anymore. She gets blinded. She's very brave. But she doesn't really drive anything after that. The only yeah. kind of, in terms of like driving the story, she's the one that kind of reveals Morbius to the audience. Yeah, but but but, but, but she like, also did that before she went blind because she saw him. No, no, no. She saw like the but, body. No, but but yeah, but she's yeah, but yeah, but then like we already know what Morbius looks like. Because she saw him already. She just didn't see him with the brain head on. But we saw the brain head when Solon was putting his head on. So, like, I I don't know. I was like... Oh, no, like, I mean, yeah, but I mean the, the, brain, the brain in the jar. Like, in the actual, like, brain and the, the disembodied brain. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, I don't know. I just think, like, there was moments, particularly, like, in episode three and four, where she was just sort of there. Mm. She had great moments with Tom. Like I said, mm. the whole... I had, you know, I had this crazy dream. <laughs> That this happened. I was like, what did fucking happen in this? Or like, you know, how long would it take us to get out of here? Oh, if we're still here in a month. It didn't work. Mm. Okay, cool. Like, there's still some great banter and great back and forth. I just think in the last half, she's just sort of there. Yeah, no, no, like, I, I as I said, outside of them, like, the introductionary, like, that, the, showing the audience what Morbius looks like in his actual. What what the will of Morbius looks like as as, as such, um, she does kind of fall into the if we're going the Hammer Horror style, which this is very Hammer Horror. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, she kind of falls into the damsel in distress role. Mm. Now, while not necessarily still being a hundred percent that, mm. she is relegated to that stereotype as such, with yeah. a lot with a lot more agency, I would say. That's like, again, my only criticism is that particularly in episode four, mm. she doesn't really do anything. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Which isn't, isn't normal for Sarah. Usually Sarah's driving something. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was probably my only question for how, how about you? Um, anything that we didn't um, touch on? No, like, I think you've kind of pretty much touched on everything. Like, as I said, like, like, I love her little, like, you know, you clever little cookie moment when she's like, okay, this guy's pretty fucking shady. Mm. And he, well, his we, wine is green. Yeah, well, I'm, that that's not the weird part. But just, like, the very casually tipping it to the side. I'm like, I don't, like, I never actually noticed that the first time I watched it. No, just do not. No, never, never picked up on that. First oh, no, I, I, I picked that straight away when I first watched this. So I was like, yeah, they're fucking clever. Uh, but, you know, the bravery, like, and um, the just trying to f- go into the wastes while she was blind. Like, mm. I thought, like, that's really, really cool. I, I really enjoyed that section of it. Because uh, mm. that just highlights who Sarah Jane is. You know, she, no matter, you'd have to take her legs and even then you want to make sure that the door, the door isn't locked, you know. Um, it's a very interesting way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I don't think I have too much else to say. Um, like I do agree that she kind of falls into the background as mm-hmm. the story goes on, because then we go into like the actual crescendo of the the whole story. Yeah. Uh, but for, when she's there, she's good. Mm. Yeah, okay. she doesn't. She does. She 
actively does nothing to de- to have a detractor in this story. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Cool. So if we go on to our prominent characters. Yes. Marin, Ohika, and Kondo are mock. <laughs> uh, uh, do you, which way do you want to do it? Now, I know that uh, maybe Kondo last because... Maybe Kondo last. Kondo last. Would you do Ohika and then Marin or Marin or Ohika? I don't mind. Sure. Um, I think maybe Marin first because I think it's true Marin that we see the status quo in the sisterhood at the moment. Mm. And it's very, I suppose it's an isolationist viewpoint to have that kind of reminiscent of um, the guys in Voga, Mm. you know, the outside world, if they, you know, are out to get us type thing, or they Mm. only want us for this one particular thing. And Marin kind of like, because of the situation and the like, so the stress of um, the flame is going out. Mm. Supposedly, Morbius stayed alive, and now you have a time lord here. It's like I think she just can't see the like past, like the Occam's razor of the whole thing. Where like you know, I have this is the easiest salute answer to everything that's going on. Mm. I'm going to stick with it, and. Like it, it does get it. You actually do end up getting very frustrated with her. Yeah, I think like with Marin, she sort of reminds me in some ways of like the Jedi Council in the original trilogy or the prequel trilogy. Um, <laughs> I was going the original trilogy. What dead? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. in the prequel trilogy because yeah. like. Marin sort of, you know, her fear of what could happen mm-hmm. led to isolation and stagnation. Mm-hmm. And it led to her, you know, she had a particular judgment and a belief that Morbius was gone. And the idea that Morbius could have still been alive in some capacity on the planet and hiding himself from her. She doesn't even want to entertain the notion, which is very similar to... The Sith have been extinct for a millennium. Yeah, exactly. It's very, very similar to that. Um, like, Marin is so afraid of losing the elixir and, like, what that would mean for the sisterhood that, like, she cuts her people off from the outside universe. She kills random fucking people who are just passing by <laughs> by pulling their ships out of the sky. And in all that, she's missing opportunities to gain knowledge and also support. So, like I said when we were talking about the Doctor, but I'm pretty sure the time was explained to them before where the elixir came from because he fucking explained it to them here and he already knew that. Do you know what I mean? He knew where it came from. This is common knowledge where the flame comes from. But she could have gained extra support had she not been so isolationist. Had she not been so afraid of the flame dying or so afraid of people coming to get the elixir. She could have reached out to the Time Lords for help when it looked like there was a problem with it. But she was so afraid of what they would do, she went completely the other direction. I was like, no, fuck it. We're not having anything more to do with them. And this leads her to making rash judgments, refusing to listen to any idea that doesn't match that judgment. 
And yet you do get incredibly frustrated with her when you're like, dude, like, he clearly appeared out of nowhere. He didn't even come to you first. Like, why the fuck do you think he's there to steal the elixir? He didn't even know that you're running out of it. He knows nothing about the situation. With all that, though, in many ways, she is still a good leader, though. Mm. Do you know, when you consider the fact that they have the elixir of life, and the doctor says that, like, Marin was old when the elixir was discovered. She's been an old lady for forever. <laughs> yeah. Do you know? Um, but she also knows that the sisterhood must come before her own needs. Like, mm. were she, you know, any other leader of a cult or whatever, it would be she gets the elixir first. It's all about her having the elixir and prolonging her life. She's not about that. No. Like, she freely admits to Ohika that the reason why she doesn't want them to go chase down Morbius is because she can't leave anymore. Mm. She can't lead them. Mm-hmm. But she's willing to hand over to Ohika when she's giving out everyone like the last few drops of the elixir. She doesn't take any for herself. She recognizes that she is not the future of the sisterhood. She'll hold on as long as she can, but she's not its future. That's going to be Ohika. Mm-hmm. And as the story progresses, she sort of realizes more and more that her time has come to an end. Yeah. Now, given the way the flame is set up, I've never fully understood. Is it like, you know, a sacred fire, sacred flame, flame. weird hand motion that she sort of like changed herself into mist to become part of the flame? Because they shouldn't fucking crawl up into it, like. No. <laughs> so they never quite explain how she becomes one with the flame. Um, but the idea that she would do that final sacrifice of herself mm. for the future of the sister. It does show that she's a good leader. She just was lost in her fear and in her own paranoia. Yeah. In many ways, like the Jedi High Council of old. <laughs> So we have Doctor Who, Lord of the Rings, Hammer Horror, Star Wars. I wonder what else we can get into this. Yeah. Yeah, like I think, you know, I think it's very easy to sort of condemn Marin in a way. Mm. Mm. And like I said, it's very easy to get frustrated with the bitch. Like, yeah. <laughs> seriously. But no, like, as you say, like, there is the element of like, she wants the sisterhood to survive. Like, she mm. isn't the sisterhood. Yeah. do that way. Which, like uh, I said, had this been on any other show, it would have been about her hoarding it and, and stuff like that. Mm. Um, which we shouldn't do here. How about you? Anything else you wanted to add? Um, no, I think that's. I think pretty much we've covered all the bases there on her. So why don't we go on to Ohika, Paddy? What are your thoughts? Um, I I liked Ohika um, because as the story goes on, like you see that she's the more I won't say rational, reasonable of the two, because mm. she's willing to entertain like the doctor's story. She's willing to entertain these various different like. Well, what if he survived? What if Morbius mm. did survive him? What if the doctor is telling the truth? Like, we can explore these things. We don't have to be like a one track thing. So, like, she, I think she would like. Marin picked well 
when she mm. picked her to be the next leader. Um, so the sisterhood for whatever it's, however it's, however big it is or it's uh, reaches, I think it's in good hands because of Ohika in this story. I'd agree. I think the one thing about Ohika is that like she do- she is very fearful at the start of the story, do you know, and she does mm. follow Marin and she agrees with Marin, but you know, when pre- presented with alternative evidence, she's not opposed to it, which mm-hmm. is good. I think you know, like Marin, she is very much willing to do what is needed to save the sisterhood. Yeah. Though obviously that's sort of counterbalanced with this connection she has with Marin. So where Marin is offering up the elixir to everyone else, Ohika's like, what about you? Like, we're not a sisterhood without you. Like, I don't get it. And like she's obviously very connected to her. Um, maybe in a sort of parental kind of way or something like that, that she looks up to Marin in a great deal. So it's like while she accepts Marin's choices. You could tell mm. that's hurting her to know that Marin won't survive, that there won't be enough elixir formed in time yeah, to keep Marin alive. And so she's sort of balancing that out with doing what she believes and doing what she needs to do in order to keep the sisterhood as a whole alive. But I always thought that was kind of sweet that like she's not trying to bump Marin off. She's not um, a blind follower. Mm. But she still holds great respect for Marin and great love for her. Yeah. And you can tell that she's conflicted on the fact that Marin won't think of herself. Hmm. You know, which I think I think it's very, very sweet. I think it's something that's quite rare to see often in these types of stories. Usually in... you'd have you know, the junior member wanting to bump off the elder hmm. or want again coveting the elixir for herself and I could do it better, but there's a lot of love and respect between the yeah. two, um, which I think is great. No, like it, as you say, uh, to bring another thing into this, it kind of reminds you of Picard and Riker a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so, yeah. And then we have uh, Kondo. Cool. I'll ask you to give me your impression of Kondo first, and I'll give okay. you mine. So, I have to wonder, when Solon was you know, doing the operation to save Kondo's life after he saved him from the crash. Mm. Like, to what what extent was, like, how how bad were his injuries? Because did he, like, try and heal his, like, say, if he had brain damage, did he try and repair it? Or did he possibly induce some sort of brain damage to make him like subservient and because like we have no idea like we've never like we don't know anything about Kondo's race so we don't know like is he actually as mentally deficient as he comes across in the story or did Solon do something to him or not do something to him to make him like this I have never once considered the fact that Kondo may have been more intelligent before the story and Solon did something or could have done something. I have never once considered that. I don't think it's true. 
but I had never considered it. <laughs> because, because, no, like, again, like you, I wouldn't have considered it. But I, so I watched this story um, a couple of weeks ago. Yes. Then obviously we had our bit of a break and I hadn't done my character notes at that stage. So I was like, okay, like I can do my character notes when we decide to actually do it. So as a result, I watched it last night. Hmm. And then it kind of struck me in the sense of for someone that was able to pilot a spaceship. Now I know like you could see like the Ogrons. Ogrons are a bit fucking dim as well. But like what did Solon like essentially create a servitor, you know? Someone I to think do you're the heavy lifting. An assumption there that isn't present in the story. Yeah. Like Which uh, is Kondo flew the ship. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Like, um, yeah, because he said he rec- he saved him from the wreckage of a certain spacecraft, but not necessarily yeah, that the, he was. There's only just like there could have been three thousand other people on that ship. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, so I think yeah. you're making a slight assumption there that isn't. Yeah. Pro- I think it's an interesting idea. Hmm. Um, like I said, it's not what I considered because I, I don't know anything in the story um, that twigged that in my head. Because, like. Kondo has, see, like, I was there going like, oh, like, if that's the case, then Kondo definitely falls into the, should be the scarment category of villains, in that, you know, he's the sympathetic villain, you know, because he dies horribly. But if he is just like the the manservant essentially, then he he does fall into the villain category, as opposed to a prominent character. Yeah, then, like, uh, when we were talking, you said that you Kondo's prominent character, and I was like, okay, like, he tries to do good at the end, mm-hmm. do you know, um, but I, I saw Kondo as a victim mm-hmm. of Solon's treatment, definitely, 100%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does that change the fact that he will do anything asked of him to get his arm back. Mm-hmm. No. And he's he's not very intelligent. He's very easily led. Does that excuse his own vicious behavior? I don't think so. <laughs> do you know? Like, yes, you know, Solon does, you know, tell him to poison the thing or whatever, but like, Kondo doesn't shy away from any of that. You know, he never says no. He never... Try- the only thing he doesn't want to do is die himself. Die himself, mm. get his arm back. Those are the two. Yeah. <laughs> like, that, that's it. Like, do you know what I mean? So, like, he never says no. He never, you know, asks to be freed. The only thing he wants is his hand back. Mm. And again, I kind of got the impression that if he did have his hand back, he'd still work for Solon. Like, yeah. He's not opposed to what Solon is doing. I would be interested to read the novelization of this. I believe I might have it. Cool. In that case, I I, if you do, I might believe I I will might borrow it yeah. off you. Um, like his rebellion at the end is more so to save Sarah Jane, you know, pretty Sarah Jane, than which I, I don't have comments about that. Yeah, well, and that's like I think. That was like, um, and again, depending on this fucking backstory now that I have in my head, that if he is, if he is someone that was, um, 
was manufactured to be like this. His rebellion to save Sarah Jane, it's a more noble thing. So he goes into prominent character. However, if it's like two beasts, like if it's the beast fighting over the pretty girl, then it's like, well, he's still a villain who's just doing a good thing, you know? And that's the way I see him. So you're saying that he rebelled. Over, he didn't rebel over Sarah yeah. Jane. He rebelled because he found out Solon had sold his arm onto the mm. new Morbius body. That's why he rebelled. Yeah. What he did do at the end was when he heard Sarah screaming, he fought the, Mo- the Morbius body. Yeah. That's it. He didn't I, rebel against Solon because of Sarah at any point. I think I just kind of, I, I've actually kind of like, I like the idea of Solon doing something to him. So I kind of do as well because, yeah. you know, it's an interesting idea, but like I said, mm. In my opinion, anyway, there's nothing in the story that indicates to supports it. any of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, his girl pretty type thing is probably meant to be endearing, you mm. know, in the same way it was with Tommy in Planet of the Spiders, or I... in the same way it was kind of meant to be with the robot in Robot. Yeah. However, it, it comes across as incredibly fucking creepy. Yeah, I was going to say, if it, it was meant to be endearing, it it kind of fails. Yeah, at, I mean, at being, being endearing. it's probably meant to be. It's probably meant to be like the gentle giant and like, don't judge Frankenstein's monster. You know, like, is Sola or is Kondo also a Frankenstein monster in the same way that Morbius is? I get that could be what they're going for. Mm. But like, you know, to the point I was making there with you, he wants her mm. but he doesn't do anything to protect her or to save her until the very end when he's dying mm. that's it like he bodily lifts her up and takes her back to Solon even though she's crying her eyes out saying I would want to be your friend if you let me go and mm. he won't do you know the fact that he's stroking her hair and touching her face while she can't see and while she's unconscious. I don't know if they were going for the gentle giant thing, but they massively missed the mark. Hmm. If that's what they're going for. I mean, yeah, it's great for Sarah Jane at the very end. He rushes in to save her from Morbius. That's great. Would have been even better if he hadn't carried her back there in the first place. Yeah. No, I think... Um... My little head cannon kind of forced him into the prominent character section where he is, he is a villain, but he's the lesser villain. Well, he's a henchman. Yeah. Do you know? But he's not a henchman who crit like he doesn't criticize what he's being asked to do. Like he was perfectly willing to lop the doctor's head off mm-hmm. the minute he dropped unconscious. <laughs> Do you know? And you kind of get the sense that, like, if Solon did say, like, oh, we'll use the girl's head, Kondo would be sad. He'd probably still do it, though. Hmm. Do you know? Like, if he'd found her unconscious somewhere. Actually, speaking of heads and that kind of stuff, um, I completely uh, skipped over a fact of, I think I didn't like about the Doctor in this story. Hmm. We see a Salonian it's the first creature that Morbius kills. And the humans in the mutants call them mutts. The doctor calls the alien a mutt. I didn't like that. Yeah. With a different doctor. So 
different also like it sort of came across as a weird term of endearment when mm. he said it because he said like poor mutt yeah do you know like yeah I didn't I, like it either yeah I just think like which we saw especially like what that story was meant to represent <laughs> like him saying that is like nah doesn't sit right doesn't yeah. sit right um, but but yeah so like I would see Kondo as a henchman hmm not necessarily a villain outright because like he wasn't doing villainous acts of his own accord by being creepy yeah with Sarah Jane but he he never says no mm-hmm. and then we have our villains proper <sighs> our, our, or our remaining villains. villains depending on how you want to look at it of mm. Morbius and Solon so shall we do Solon first and build up to Morbius <sighs> or do you think that Solon is actually the bigger villain of the piece I think Solon is the bigger villain because mm. in in a story titled The Brain of Morbius Morbius it doesn't really impact like when I was when I was watching this I was saying like, this this seems kind of reminiscent of the pyramids of Mars but Sutek was directly influencing stuff in pyramids. Hmm. Like his power was actively like uh marionetting Scarman hmm. or you know, his mental abilities were like stopping the explosion, or even like when he, he hypnotized the doctor. Like Morbius is he he's he's essentially just a brain in a jar. Like he doesn't have any amazing like his mental powers are a throwaway line that the doctor said that maybe his mental abilities are blocking your second mm-hmm. sight or whatever it is. And I think it's the idea of Morbius is the villain. Like mm-hmm. yeah, so like like we've seen Renegade timelines before in different capacities. Mm-hmm. Like we've seen the meddling monk, we've seen the war chief, and we saw obviously the master. Mm-hmm. The idea of a time lord with a massive cult army i think that's that's genuinely intriguing i actually yeah. really like that to the extent of like the time lords have to create an alliance to stop him yeah. like that is awesome um and like i really like the fact that this story is set after the fact like it's set like this is as i said it's the lord of the rings i think this is yeah. like the third the, um, the third age yeah. i would i really want to see what it was like at its height, like what mm. Morbius was like when he was leading, like or when he was gathering his army and gathering his cult. Um, so Morbius himself doesn't really influence a lot of stuff, but it's more so the idea of Morbius. Yeah, I would agree. I think he's a very interesting premise for a villain. He's a brain in a jar and vocal cords on a pole. Mm. Um. I think what's interesting is that like even though a lot of his lines are throwaway, he does still have so much power. Hmm. Like everything Solon is doing, and we'll talk about Solon in a second, is for Solon's own benefit, but it's in the name of Morbius. Of Morbius. Do you know? Hmm. Morbius, even just as a brain in a jar and a set of vocal cords, is inspiring action. Hmm. Which is powerful 
in its own right. Yeah. Do you know? Um, I quite like the fact that Morbius doesn't give a monkey's bollocks what his body's going to look like. Mm. He's like, I just want a body. I don't like being a brain in a jar. I'm terrified that Barbara Wright is going to come along and smash me <laughs> <laughs> with a hammer or something. Um, but what we do see and what is true from particularly the Master and the War Chief and some of the other Time Lords we've seen, mm-hmm. like Second Doctor onwards, that were necessarily true of the Meddling Monk, but kind of true Second Doctor onwards, is the arrogance. Yeah. The arrogance of the Time Lords is still present. That's ultimately what she's undoing, is that arrogance. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, so I think he's a very interesting villain. I also will be interested in seeing the sort of the cult of Morbius, yeah, like as a standalone episode or even as a film, mm. I think it'll be really interesting because, like, we you sort of describe it as like they form an alliance between the Time Lords and Sisters of the Crown. I sort of picked it up that like, yeah, they have an alliance where sort of the Time Lords were coming to their Age. rescue, yeah, in a way, <laughs> do you know. Um, but I, I think that would be, I think it'd be a really good story. I think it'd be a really good film. Because like if if you think like like to like suppose to do a visualization of it, it'd be like you know in uh, Avengers Endgame, all the various mm-hmm. different like species that Thanos has in his army. That's mm-hmm. how I envision yeah. Morbius's cult. You know, yeah. Um, I think that'd be really interesting. Though, if they were ever to do that, I would infinitely prefer either a film or miniseries. I wouldn't actually. Unless they were going to do it like flux, I wouldn't actually like it to be done in New Who. I, like if I, they were going to retcon that like one of the Doctor's previous selves was yeah. there or whatever. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't want them to do it in the like 45 minute format. It, it needs to be a multi I'd nearly hour. even go, I, I'd nearly even go like a big finish series. Mm. I, I think that... visual, you see. Big oh, finish well, is awesome, yeah. but I need, I need a visual. Yeah. Well, like, um, you get the right cast and you get the right sound. Well, true, it, but I'd yeah. still, I still want to oh, see Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think in this story, I think Morbius does have an effect. Um, But he is the monster mm-hmm. in the story. Yeah. Do you know? Um, and unlike, you know, some of the tellings of Frankenstein where it's like, oh, like, you know, don't judge the monster yeah. by the creator here the monster and the creator are very very similar <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> you know? um uh, just to speak of like the monster part of uh mm. morbius that fight scene with kondo was just done perfectly that was brilliant that was it, very good. it was so well done like mm. christopher barry's direction is just amazing for the story yeah uh, and then we have solon Jesus Christ, Philip Maddock is amazing in this story. He is so good. He, he is so is brilliant. so, like, so good here. While I think it would be interesting to see a Christopher Lee type or a Peter Cushing type mm. in this role, I almost wouldn't want it as a replacement for what we have. Mm. What we have is great. Yeah. Um. I think they would have been an interesting choice. I don't necessarily believe they would have been a better choice. Yeah, no, I, I um, agree. Like it, like sometimes, like 
you see a name attached to something, it's like, oh, it's star, you know, like a big leading star. It's going to be brilliant. You see a different version of it with a lesser known star. It's even better, you know? Yeah. Um, Like, just like, like I, I was like, which do I prefer? Do I prefer his performance as the warlord? Or do I prefer his performance as Solon? Because we, t- I actually listened back to our conversation about mm. the Warlord in War Games, and like we were blown away by him there. Mm. So like, it's just like he's so fucking good here. Like he's he's, so in- he's incredibly charismatic, mm. uh, and he he's he's able to change his emotions like like at the flip of a switch. Like you know when he's ranting and raving to Kondo about the sisters, you know, like you know that mm. you know that vile harpy. I'll see her, you know. Mm ground to dust or whatever and then he goes in he's like Marin I beg of you I have given you aid in the past and he's like very like kind of humble and mm. yeah it's just it's so good and as he as he goes on like he's getting caught up in his own little cult or personality you know mm. um, I did have one moment in this where, I, and I've had this multiple times watching this when he's going around shouting for Condor because he needs for Condor because he needs like more candles. All I hear mm. about is Aziz, light. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Aziz. Completely unrelated with something that always comes to my mind. Uh, no. Yeah, definitely. Um yeah. I know like, he's he's such a master manipulator here. Like mm. he, how he manipulates Kondo, mm. how he manipulates the doctor, how he doesn't quite get there with Sarah Jane because Sarah Jane kind of like susses them out a bit. Like you're, mm. you're a bit too obsessed with heads. <laughs> yeah. You're kind of creepy. Yeah. Also, I think there's like, whether it's intentional or unintentional, I think there's a bit of manipulation of Morbius as well. Kind of. I think <sighs> Morbius said it himself that Solon says he's doing all this for Morbius. Mm-hmm. And he is. But he wants to be known as the creator, creator of Morbius. Yeah. Morbius can have all the power that he wants. Mm-hmm. But Solon wants the notoriety. Yeah. And I don't think that's a manipulation of Morbius. I think it's actually a... You know, we both benefit what the fuck you're complaining about. Mm-hmm. Um, type thing. But like the fact that he had this... Jar thing. Mm-hmm. In a bin. <laughs> For ages, and he was like, "Oh, but I want to put a, I want to put the brain in a head, yeah, and reattach the head to a body, and have it all still work." Like, you know, Morbius would have risen to power ages ago. Yeah, <laughs> that's so I'm not just been obsessed. Well, even it perfect, it, even it's like you know, like the side effects of like you know, working on the different bodies, like you know when he's. Like, he's stuffed, you know, like, electrodes into the fucking insectoid heads and he's, like, jotting down, like, you know, stimulus mm-hmm. responses and all this type of stuff. I, like, it just remind, it reminded me of so many things. Like, you know, Dr. Frankenstein, Fabius Boyle from the mm-hmm. Warhammer universe. Just so much stuff. But I was, like, I'm just completely blown away by Philip Maddox's performance. He yeah. is uh, his, his so... His performance is fantastic. I think... Yeah, the doctor in the story we said is good. I think Sarah Jane is a good one, but I think this is Philip Maddox's oh, story. Yeah, no, he is hands down the best thing in this story. Yeah, he is so um, good. I have a couple of things with Solon as a character. Mm. One thing that 
like I kind of get it and I also kind of don't is like okay we can assume because he said that like the female's head is not the right size so Sarah, mm. Sarah's head is too tiny mm. different the giant brain Morbius's brain is fucking huge mm. that wouldn't fit in Tom Baker's head I don't know what you're saying yeah I think Solan was distracted by the curls and didn't realize that the kid actually yeah. was smaller. Um, once he got Kondo, hmm. I get that Kondo's head probably wasn't appropriate. Mm-hmm. Kondo's body, though. Yeah. Part of you is kind of like, why didn't you just use Kondo's body and wait for the perfect head to come along? Hmm. And this is where I think Terence's original script, where Solon would have been a robot that doesn't perceive human or humanoid beauty and aesthetics and just sees, you know, lungs that can, you know, filter science. Um, you know, just sees a claw for crushing things mm-hmm. just use a hand for dexterity I think in Terence's original version that makes more sense than yeah. someone like Solon who wants this thing of great beauty but then creates this hodgepodge like <laughs> I mean Sarah Jane refers to him as Mr. Allsorts do you know which is yeah a different character from later in the show um <laughs> But, like, I do sort of wonder why they never mentioned why he didn't just use Kondo instead. <laughs> like, he's there. <laughs> um, I will say, though, um, the, the pure sign that Solon is doing this, A, for personal notoriety, and B, because he's batshit crazy. Mm. Dude, as soon as the brain fell on the floor, your experiment was over. Yeah. It was on the floor. There's no five second rule. No. A, you transported it without any of that liquid mm-hmm. up two flights of stairs. So, I don't know if it was going to hold up very well anyway. Um, you would keep it in that liquid for a reason. Did that reason suddenly go away? Um, but like, dude, it fell from a countertop onto the floor with a bit of a splat. Yes. And a thud. We'll say a splud. (laughs) (laughs) It's damaged. It's dirty. You've introduced a whole manner of bacteria. Your experiment is over. The fact that he continues is not for Morbius's benefit, because Morbius is now fundamentally dead because he's just a brain that's not connected to anything else. He's not even connected to his fucking vocal cords. He's just a brain. <laughs> it's all for Solon's own. I need to be able to say it's just <laughs> The operation was a complete success, although Nord Morbius now ends every sentence with the word waffle. Um, but yeah, I think I completely agree with you. I think, you know, it's called the brain of Morbius. You know, we have the sisterhood of Karn. We have the doctor mm-hmm. of Sargon. This is the story of Solon, the mm-hmm. psycho. 
Yeah. Um, it's he's Frank. This is a Frankenstein retelling of the highest order, and he is Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, and just a reminder: Frankenstein was the doctor. Yep. Not the monster. Nope. I recommend that story to anyone. I don't think I've ever actually read it. It's one of those stories like everyone knows it, but like I've seen so many sort of interpretations of it. Like, I still think the X Files post modern Prometheus is like the best Frankenstein story ever. <laughs> it's lovely. I will. Um, I will lend you the book in return for the <laughs> novelization of the Brain of Morpheus. Also, we didn't mention in the trivia that mm. obviously this is based on Frankenstein. Yes. And the 13th Doctor. Uh, so, here's the thing. The 8th Doctor travels with Mary Shelley for quite a bit of time in uh, the first five, I want to say, audio stories mm-hmm. that Paul McGann did with Big Finish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the 13th Doctor story, mm-hmm. The Haunting of Villa Diodati, takes place on the night that Mary Shelley was inspired to do Frankenstein. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's a really nice yeah. connection. It it um, really is. It really and is. And I forgot to mention it in trivia. Yeah. So. Uh, read it, people. Read it. <laughs> so that is the characters out of the way, and now we're going to come to the final part. The overall section where Trish and I each give a score out of five for the story. Um, can't remember we who don't went remember first. Who no, first. cannot remember who went first the last time. Um, why not? I did. I think I did, you went first. No, I did. I think I did brain first. I know not brain pyramids first, and then you did yes, androids. And and also for you. Yeah. So okay. So I go first. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah, because I. I'm a massive pyramid's head, so um I honestly forgot how dark this story is. Mm-hmm. Like I was watching it again last night and I was like because I didn't have to write down my notes as I was watching it. I think I might have I think I might do that in the future. You know, like watch it once with the notes and mm-hmm. once without. I I actually completely forgot how fucking dark this story is. Like it's very unsettling at points. Like this is the most hammer horror the hammer horror era of Doctor Who mm. is hands down. Um like the violence, as I said, is thematically apt, but mm. it's a very jarring experience. Like um the the blood script going off, the multiple gunshots to condo, like the uh, essentially um Morbius snapping his neck with the pincer claw. Mm. Um there's a huge level of violence in this, you know, and like I Look, I don't mind it. I'm not one of those people that gets affected by it, but it's it is jarring, just kind of mm-hmm. to say the least, com- compared to like the last couple of stories that we had. Um, everything is top quality though in this. Like I, like it's the story is top quality. The production values are amazing. The music is so the constant eerie, like violin like mm-hmm. slash organ music being played over the whole thing is so good. It sets the tone amazingly performances all around are great philip maddock is just fucking he's on a whole other level to everyone else like he is that good in this um everything is on top form here i 
where it kind of falls down though i think for me is i suppose in a story titled the braid of morbius Mm. and not in a not in a bad way because like we have Solon there to take up the slack but morbius doesn't play as huge a role as you would think that he is in it as Mm. such um so like it's it's still a fantastic story and i still love it to bits um and I'm just like I'm flitting between like a four point seven five and a five. I just I I really don't know, um, but I think I'm going to go with a five. I, I I just like I really really enjoy watching the story. Cool. So that, that's saving the score from last week or last episode where you yeah. gave Android Invasion a two point five. Yeah, <laughs> and this is now your third five out of five. For the season, yeah, because uh, you had Saigon's pyramids and now this. I, I I'm sorry, like I love the story of Frankenstein and just everything in this, even like with the little detractors. I still love this story. Hmm. Very good. Hmm. So for me, I agree with everything you said, with one small exception. Right. I think there is one area where the production value was not what I would have expected. Okay. And that's the sisterhood. In what capacity, just out of curiosity? I think Doctor Who has a cheap budget and that's fine. The fact that their swords are plastic flames on a stick, I can let go. But the whole idea of the sisterhood and their chanting the fact they had a professional dancer brought in it's hands touching up repeating sacred fire sacred flame over and over again and just spinning around in a circle i kind of i just find that a little bit lackluster just in how Mm. they're presented um even and like I know that like I mentioned like the dangers of the fire, but even before they light the fire, they're dancing around with the like clearly they're meant to be dancing with fire like flaming mm. torches the whole time, but there's no fire on them. They're just dancing with blank torches for a while or like little tiny flames on them, and I don't know why it is. It really struck me that like everything else in this is perfect. The way they built the Morbius body the mm. way they did like the brain jar with the vocal cords brilliant the scenery and the sets are fantastic there was something though i don't know if it's that the sisterhood set was too small possibly uh i thought like the whole starting off the dance with no flame i actually thought that was part of the ritual i thought it was going to build this crescendo where they do light the torches and then they carry on yeah i don't we think like at some point some of the torches are written some of them aren't and you're kind of yeah. like oh okay yeah. Um, I don't know. I just think that they could have done more in the production on that, which isn't a story problem. Mm-hmm. It's a production problem. Mm-hmm. But it's a production problem that sort of can take when you, you hear about the sisterhood and the power that they have, and the power they get from the flame, and the fact that like they're sacrificing to the flame, all this kind of stuff. It doesn't match with the visual. Mm. very well do you know um 
So that, that that's probably like my biggest sort of. Uh, that could have been better. Everything else, I think, is fantastic. I completely agree with you. Um, I kind of wish Sarah Jane had done a little bit more in the last episode, other than just being there. Mm-hmm. Her being there is fabulous, but kind of wish she'd done a bit more. Um, than just be there. Um, you know, the bits I didn't like. You know, in terms of like Kondo being creepy, that's his character. That's not. Mm-hmm. The, not a negative in in any way um so for me like i originally like i really like this story i always have but i always sort of consider it in the sort of like terror planet pyramids this but we skip android (laughs) and i never rank it quite as high as the other three Hmm. there's bits in it i love no no doubt about it but i never rank it as high but as so i originally gave this a four mm-hmm. but as we were talking and we were talking about solon and that performance that performance just drives so much yeah i can't give him a four mm-hmm. but personally i don't believe the story is a five so i'm going to 4.5 yeah yeah um, like I said, it was originally a four, and it was a four the whole way through the conversation until we got to Solon. And then I'm like, actually, your man was fucking fantastic. Oh, he's, performance is brilliant. He's so good. He's like, he... it makes up for almost everything else. And like I said, I don't like docking points for production value. Yeah, but when the production value takes me out of the story, mm. like, then I don't have a choice. There, 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 a there are instances where. We, we've always said, like, oh, we try not to hold the production values against it. But mm. there are instances where, like, it 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 goes too far. Like, like you yeah. do, have, like, the suspension of disbelief is just completely fucking shot, you know? Yeah. And like I said, I do wonder if part of the problem was that the set was too small. Possibly. Very you know, possibly. The, that room wasn't that big, and that round thing in the middle was quite large. Mm. So I do wonder if the set had been bigger... And they had more room to move about. Would the dances have been more elaborate? Would it have been more believable? You can actually feel the fact that the dances and the act, like the hand, it's the fucking hand shaking <laughs> action thing. I think if there was more space, I probably would have believed that that was actually doing something. Yeah. <laughs> Other than being a bunch of women sat in a circle. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, like, I, I, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. No. But still, you know, 4.5, nothing to snub your nose at. No. Do you know, I'm on two fives for the season, mm. not three. Yeah. But I did have a 4.75 and now a 4.5. Mm. So we were slightly concerned, like, how would last week impact season 13 as a whole? Mm-hmm. What I will say is that you are currently resting on a 4.4 for season 13, and I'm resting on a 4.45 for season 13, with an overall average of 4.43. Mm-hmm. So the question is, next week, we're back into a six-parter. Seeds of Doom, will it stick the landing? Here's hoping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With that, though, we will hopefully real life work permitting yes 
And my apologies for that. Those of you who listen every week, I really appreciate the fact that you listen every week, but real life got in the way. We will hopefully be back next week with Seeds of Doom. So, guys, we shall talk to you then. Bye. Bye.